0: Uh, Exciting day, as has already been said, as we uh, start a new sermon series, which will take us uh, through to the end of January, as we take a look at the pastoral epistles and God's vision for His church. I want to begin uh, today just with a little reflection. Uh, This December, Angie and I will have been married for 11 years. Now, I know for some of you, that's just a drop in the bucket. But for us, that's a pretty good milestone, uh, 10 years down and, and then one. Now, early on in our marriage, we both brought different expectations to our house. We, we had grown up in different ways with different families, and we had a different definition of normal, a different idea of what it meant to be married, different ideas of what it meant to be in a household. Let me just give you uh, some examples. For example, if I was to ask you, when does the Christmas season start? What would you say? December 1st? November? After Labor Day? That's pretty early. Uh, Well, you see, one of us thought that it started at Thanksgiving. And I thought it started at December. So, you know, of course, it was... Uh, Ange thought, once Thanksgiving comes, Canadian Thanksgiving at that, you start decorating for Christmas. And I thought that was strange. Let me give you another example. Uh, What what do you put on your pancakes? Maple syrup, right? Yeah, well, I thought so too. Uh, Well, one of us, she will remain nameless, uh, thought that you put peanut butter on your pancake, then the cheapest table syrup that you can find. Uh, Whereas I thought... (laughs) <laughs> that it was real butter and real maple syrup. And if you're friends with Mark Gaynick, hopefully some organic maple syrup that he has made from his own trees. Uh, and then there was the whole issue of country mouse, city mouse. So I grew up in the country. and grew up, well, I don't know if Brantford's a city. We have a visitor from Brantford, so we'll call it a city. Um, you know. So if you are in the country, this is, well, this is how I grew up. You let your kids and your pets roam free. You just sort of open the door, you take them outside, they they go, and then you ring the bell at dinner time and they come back. Now we went through a lot of dogs because of this policy. <laughs> Nevertheless, that's how I grew up. and, and we had we had a forest, and we had we had a gravel pit and we had a conservation area, and we just go. and then we come back. Uh, in the country, when a stranger knocks on your door, you welcome them in for lunch. Yeah, I don't know, you come on in for lunch. Uh, And you don't lock your doors unless you're leaving town for more, or town country, you're not leaving home for more than two weeks. You leave the doors unlocked, everybody's fine with that. Now, my wife, though, grew up in the city. And her family policy was you keep your kids and your pets under watch inside or in a fenced-in area. And whereas I would go out and come back when the dinner bell rang, when my wife was in high school and university, she was quite a basketball player, so she would go for for these runs, and her dad would get in the car and follow behind her. Just the exact opposite of my experience. Um, and, And there was this just earnest suspicion of anyone who knocked on the door, and you keep the doors locked even when you're home. So it's just totally different. You, you, you bring this together. When does Christmas start? What do you put on your pancakes? Country most, city most? Together in a new home, and it was, at times, explosive. Maybe you can relate. What did you bring into your marriage? And what did your spouse bring into your marriage? And was there that time, I mean, maybe where you had to get to know one another and bring those two expectations together? The fact is, all of us bring our past household experiences into a new household. It's a part of merging together. This is true in marriage. It's true in roommate relationships. It's true if you have boarders living with you or tenants if you're a landlord. Uh, These are all forms of a household and we all have different definitions of normal. Different expectations. And that can be difficult when we come together under one roof. Now there are Five aspects. There's more, but let me just give you five aspects of a household that we all have expectations around that we bring into our household. Number one, leadership. We all grew up, and either dad was in charge or mom was in charge. Leadership. Who leads the household? Then there's expectations around division of labor. What are the men man jobs and what are the woman jobs? Or are there no such thing as as a man job and a woman job? And there's equal distribution of labor, based and it's irregardless of what the job is. There's expectations around money. There are spenders, and there are savers. And when you bring spenders and savers under the same roof into one household, it can cause conflict. Then there's social activity. Are you going to have an open-door policy where people can drop by? Or are you going to be a homebody where you stay at home and and you want to book people in advance? And then there's the different culture. On top of all of these other expectations, if you come from different cultures that may be slightly different, or what if it's really different? Then it just compounds the differences that you're trying to bring together under one roof. Now these five aspects, it's not exhaustive, but I think it's a fairly good list to get us started of some things that have to be uh, considered when we're merging together into a new household. And these five aspects are easily transferable to the church. What we're going to learn today is that the church is God's household. And just as a husband and a wife bring different expectations into their new household, so all of us have different life experiences in different churches, different local expressions of Christ's one universal church. And when we come together, we bring all of that experience with us. And of course, then, that's going to cause some conflict. It's going to, we're going to have to work it out. And these five examples uh, we can see played out in the church. Leadership. Who's going to lead? And how are they going to lead? Is the church going to be hierarchical with some who are leading and others who are following? Or is it a democracy where every person has equal say in every decision? Depending on your church experience, you're going to have a different expectation for how we are going to operate as God's household at Soshore. Division of labor. What are the, the man jobs and what are the woman jobs? What can a man do and what can a woman do? What are the expectations on men and women in God's household? Money. We collect. We're all gathering our money. We're giving our money to this household. How are we going to spend that money? And are we going to spend it in a way that everybody agrees all of the time? Then you have the problem of some people are spenders. Some people are savers. How do we bring that together? Social activity. And there's so many examples for this. Let me just use evangelism as an example. Are we going to program evangelism? Or are we going to do evangelism personally, independently, or some blend of the two? Culture. Every church, local church, has its own culture. And and if you take sort of North American culture, that's one thing. If we can even say there is a north american culture but what happens and hopefully god willing we would become ethnically diverse that, that would be a prayer that i would have for our church that that as new people come to canada and come to barry that we would be uh, sharing with them the gospel they would believe in jesus and that we would be a multicultural church that's going to that's going to raise questions for how are we going to express ourselves in worship what are our expectations culturally of one another? All of these things are, are by way of introduction, not just to today's message, but to the whole sermon series. The dominant metaphor that God uses through First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus is that the church and every local church is the household of God. So, so we would expect then that, that similar challenges and opportunities that exist in our own households are true also of the church. So what we're going to be doing over the next five months is making a slight shift in our, our controlling metaphor. For the last 5 years, the metaphor that we've used as a church to understand who we are as a collective group is the body of Christ. And that that is powerful. We're not going to get rid of that. It's scriptural. And and so we talk about ourselves as the body. We are the body. The church is the body. And that is, that is true and that is good. But over the next five months, while we continue to be the body of Christ, what we're going to see is God has also given us the metaphor of the household. And so we're going to begin to, to speak of our collective existence in this local church as we are in the household of God. We're a family in one household. And what does that mean? So that's all by way of introduction uh, to today and to the next five months. Now let's take a look at what the scriptures say about this. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 to 16. So we're starting in the middle of the book and we'll explain in a moment why that is. As you're finding your place in 1 Timothy chapter 3, would you please stand? First. Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. This is the word of God. As I read this, hear God speaking to us through the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. Taken up in glory. The words of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have called us into your household. And that so Shore is your household. I pray today and over the next five months that you would help us to understand what this means. And I pray that you would help us to organize ourselves as you have directed us in your word. I pray that you would help us to hold on loosely to our our past experiences and expectations and to align ourselves first and foremost with your revealed will in Scripture for your household. For you are the head. God, I pray for us that you would bless us, protect us from the evil one, build us up in our love for one another, unite us around the truth of your word, Now build us up and glorify yourself in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. With this text, what we're going to do for the remainder of our time is to take a look at four observations, four observations about this text. The first observation is that it is not self-evident how we are supposed to behave in the church. I think sometimes we, we we assume that we know what the church is and how we are supposed to behave in the church. And a lot of those assumptions come from the fact if we've been raised in the church, that, that we just have watched the church, the local church. We have seen how people have behaved in the church and we have just assumed that is how we ought to behave in the church. But what we learn here right off the, the start, look at verse 14 is that Paul is writing to Timothy, and this is a man who had walked with Paul, seen Paul establish local churches. He had heard Paul's teaching. He had been established as Paul's representative in Ephesus uh, to oversee the church and help to establish the church. And even still, with all of those advantages that Timothy had, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul says, "I, I ought to write you a letter with very clear instructions on how you are to behave in the household of God. Because I cannot presume that you would know. So how ought we to behave in the church? Where do we get the, the, the knowledge for what the church is? In my experience in 13 years of pastoring, Most of the conflict in the local church comes from different expectations, different assumptions, different convictions. And most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time, these different expectations, presumptions, assumptions, convictions are not rooted in Scripture. They're rooted only in personal preference and in personal experience. So how much of our perception of the church and our activity within the church is derived from a careful study of the scriptures? I just, I, I just honestly ask all of us to ask ourselves that. When we have given these expectations, have they come from a personal encounter with God in the scriptures or have they come from just the things that we've always done? I want to just balance this a little bit and and encourage us. Not all of our past experience is bad. Not all of it is wrong. Even even the, the, the preferences that we have that can't really be found in the Scriptures, it, it can be good. It can be beneficial. It can be uplifting. It, it can be worth talking about and considering and trying to fold that in. So we're not saying, if you can't find it in the Scripture, there's no place for it in the church. Because God hasn't given us an answer for every last thing in His Word for how we ought to behave in the church. The problem is, when these unscriptural experiences and expectations take on a life of their own and become a requirement for belonging in the church. When we say, you know what? If I don't have this, then I can't be here. The only... things that we can say that about are the things that we find in the Scriptures. Everything else we have to hold on to it lightly. And we can contribute and say, I think it would be really good. I think it would be really edifying, really really excellent if we could add this to what we're doing. But I can't find it in Scripture so it's okay if we don't. That, that's really what we're looking for. And, and God, in his divine mercy and sovereign plan, has given us very clear instructions. He said, look, this is, this is the requirements. These are the things that are non-negotiable. And, and he has put them throughout all of scripture, but he has located them more densely in three books of the Bible, which we call the pastoral epistles. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing this fall. We want to, all of us, let's get on the same page. And before we start negotiating among the negotiables, let's agree to that which is non-negotiable. The things that God has said, you know, this has to be in my church because this is my household. This is how you ought to behave. These are my expectations, says the Lord Jesus Christ, of you, my church. Let's agree on those things and then let's implement them. And so you will see that we are going to uh, take these books and we're going to look for very clear instructions. And we're going to implement these instructions. So that's the first observation. It is not self-evident how we ought to behave in the church. And that that is humbling and it, it gets us on the right page, the right foot, to start in this journey together. Observation number two. South Shore is the household of God. We've already established this in in the lead up, the introduction to this sermon. Uh, But this is maybe self-evident, and yet churches very often fall into a trap of thinking that there's something other than the household of God. And what we want to affirm right at the very beginning is that SoShore is not a business. We are not a corporation. Therefore, the things that businesses and corporations seek after, we're not seeking after those things. We're not a club. We're not not a club that people join and we get a membership in and and we do a lot of good things and fun things. That's not our primary goal. We're not even a charitable organization. Uh, We are a charity, like charitable... Charitable organization, but that's not who we are primarily. We have the benefits of having charitable status, but if the if the government was to take away our charitable status, it changes nothing about who we are as the household of God. Therefore, we should not be conforming ourselves necessarily to, to the restrictions of charitable organizations, if that ever contradicts the word of God. We are not, first and foremost, a political party. And we're not expecting that everyone in this household will be a member of the same political party. We are not a professional guild. We're not a union. We're not any of these kinds of gatherings of people. We are the household of God. That's what we are. We are God's house. And everything that we do has to be in line with that. Well, what, what is a household? If we we're a household, I mean, we might say, well, that is like a family. That's true. But what Paul has in mind here is a little bit more broad than, than our perhaps idea or understanding of, of a family. But Paul is envisioning the Greco-Roman ideal of the household. And in the Roman Empire, and they had borrowed this from the Greeks, uh, they had what was called a household code. And so what the Roman Empire did was they divided up society into units. And the foundational unit of Roman society at the time of the empire was the household. And so the the emperor would publish and the senate would publish household codes. This is how we want every household to structure itself this is how we want you to organize yourselves and so when Paul says that we are the household of God he has in mind these household codes that are being published by the empire and say this is how you ought to structure yourselves but Paul is not saying that we should structure ourselves the way Rome says that we should structure ourselves but what he's saying is I have an alternate code for you This is how you ought to organize yourselves. This is how you ought to structure yourselves. So within the Greco-Roman household, uh, there was a hierarchy. There was a clearly defined head. And the head was the husband and the father. And the father had complete authority over the household. The father could uh, delegate authority to... Uh, what is called an oikinomos. The reason I give you the Greek is because it's not easily a tra- uh, translatable word, but it's basically a, a household steward or a household manager. But the ultimate authority always, always rested in the father. And these, these household managers only exercised the authority that was given to them by the father of the household. Within uh, a Greco-Roman household, there would be a wife, Who is often a mother. Then there would be extended family. So it's more than just our understanding of family. There would be widows. If there was a widow, then then it was this household that was supposed to take her in, relatives. There would be other dependents that might be blood relatives or not. So you would try and bring your dependents, people who needed a household, they would be folded in and they'd be given a place in the household. There would be uh, slaves. There would be children. And there would be adopted heirs. So when the father died, who's going to take over? Well, the, the adopted heir would take over. And that often was a biological child, but not always. But everyone knew who was second in command, who was going to step into the position of head of the household if the head of the household died. Now, in the Greco-Roman household, much like the church, every person had a defined place within a hierarchical structure of the household which means that there were relationships of authority and submission each person within this relationship of authority and submission was given a particular role each role came with certain responsibilities and burdens and freedoms And so it's not as though some people were entirely free with no responsibility, no burdens. Uh, The greater your authority, the greater the burden and responsibility that was on you. The less your responsibility, the less freedom you had, perhaps, to exercise your own will or or to cast a vote for decision-making, but the less responsibility, the the, the less burden that was placed on you. So this is what's in Paul's mind when he says that you are the household of God. And God has structured the local church much like, not entirely like, but much like the Greco-Roman household. As God's household, we are organized into a hierarchical relational structure. So who is the head of the house? Who is at the top? Who has ultimate authority over this household? It's God. God alone has ultimate authority through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is fully God. He is the father. He is the head of the house. And he has organized us under the headship of Jesus Christ. And so as we read through 1 Timothy, we're going to see that the head of the house has delegated authority. Much like a father can delegate authority in the Greco-Roman household, he has delegated authority to elders, And elders oversee the functioning of the household. And the head of the house, Jesus Christ, has also organized the church with deacons, with older men and younger men, older women and younger women, widows, slaves, parents, children. And he has even defined what he wants the wealthy to do within his household we're going to see all of that over the next little while. What I want to m- mention right here, right now, which might burst some of our expectations, especially in the, in the culture in which we live, is that the church is not a democracy. The church, the church is not one person, one vote. Not everybody's uh, opinion is, is to receive the same authority, the same hearing, the same implementation. And none of us have the right to override the directives and the instructions that the head of the house has given to us that is God. Not even the elders who have been given the the highest level of authority within the local church on earth. None of us have the right to suspend or to override or to ignore any instructions that have been given to us by God through His Word. And so our first responsibility as elders is to search the scriptures and say, what does the head of the house want us to be and to do and to implement it and to insist on it? No matter how unpopular it is in our culture. And it could be unpopular in our culture. Like fathers in the family, right? So God has entrusted the same authority and responsibility to fathers in in, in your families. So... God is ultimately the father of all of us and he reigns in our, in our families through Jesus Christ. But God has entrusted headship and oversight to each father of every family, every husband of every marriage. So he has entrusted that authority to elders. And with that comes authority, but also a great burden, a great heaviness, much responsibility to faithfully execute the, the, the will of, And the directives of God for his household. Therefore, social is to function like a household. God's household. And this necessarily means that we have to be very careful about how, how our past experiences influence how we structure life in the church. And just like in our marriages, there will be aspects of our past experience that we want to carry forward. There's some things that were good about our our previous church experience, our our previous local churches, and and what was good we want to bring into this household. But just like every, every new married couple says, you know, there are things about my childhood that I don't want to be repeated for my children. I don't want to bring them into this household. So also we want to take some of the things that we've experienced in other households, previous church experiences, and we say, we don't want that. To come into this household. And so this is going to take some time. And we need to work together. You need to trust that the word of God is going to direct us. And trust that the elders are going to help us to do this. And we must seek the scriptures first. So that's observation number two. Observation number two is that the, that the south shore is the household of God. Observation number three. South Shore is the church of the living God. Let me say, well, man, Paul's being very redundant here, isn't he? Uh, he's already said that we're the household. Now he's saying that we're the church of the living God. Well, there's something slightly different here about what Paul is saying. And what I want us to notice, at South Shore, we are a church. We're going to get into that word. That word is ekklesia, which means called out ones. And we are the church We're called out by the living God, which means that we're not gathered here together because we agree about everything. We're not gathered together here because we necessarily like one another. And there are groups of people all over the world that gather together because they agree about some things or because they like one another. That's not what has drawn us to one another here at Shore. Neither our like for one another nor the things we agree about are our primary reasons for being gathered together at Shore. It's not that we share necessarily uh, the same polit- political philosophy or philosophical outlook about what is true and not true, although we do about what is true and not true. But th- if that's not originally what called us together. It, we're not called together here to make money. Lots of people gather together because by gathering together, they can make more money together. That's not why we're together. We're not even together together first and foremost, in order to improve society. And this might be something you want to discuss in your, in your uh, dis- discipleship groups. Are we or are we not supposed to be improving society? I think it would be a nice benefit if we could, that when we're together, the things that we do together could be of benefit to society, but that's not our primary reason for being together. Why? Why do I say that? Because there are lots of non-Christian groups of people that gather together, and their primary function is to improve society. And a lot of non-Christian groups do a great job at improving society. That's not primarily why we're together. I hope we do improve society. That's not our primary reason for being together. So why are we here together? Why, are we, why do we call ourselves brother and sister in this one household called South Shore Bible Church? We are together because the living God who spoke creation into existence, who gave each one of us life, God who is a real person, who is active in the world, by his intimate knowledge of who we are, he knows each of our names. He knows all of the good and the bad about all of us. He is. He knows the number of hairs on your head. I do have somewhere he knows the, the seconds of our life not just the day the days or the hours but right down to the nanosecond of how long we will live he knows everything about us this living god has by his own sovereign divine mercy and will called us individually out of the world and into his household here at south shore that's why we're together this was his doing. He has assembled us together. And this is a great act of mercy. He knows exactly what each one of us needs. You know, uh, when I was just starting out as a pastor, uh, there was a man in the church that I drove him crazy and he drove me crazy. And I went to my mentor and I said, "I, this man is driving me crazy. And and I I shared a whole lot about this man to my mentor. And I said, what can, what can you help me with? How can you help me with this? And I was hoping for some commiseration. I was hoping to be proved right. I was hoping that my mentor would say, well, this is what you got to do. You have to do X, Y, and Z. And I was, if I'm being really honest, I was hoping that X, Y, and Z was going to lead to this man leaving the church. That's what I went to my mentor for. How do I get this man out of the church? And you know what my mentor said to me? He said, I am so thankful to God that God has put you and this man in the same church. And I was enraged. How could you say such a thing? Why would you want me and this man to be in the same church? He, He drives me crazy. I drive him crazy. And my mentor said, because he is bringing out the worst in you. And now you can deal with it in the grace of God. You know, being called out of the world into the same church is not about always getting along. It's not about being in conflict-free life together. It's not always going to be easy. But God knows each one of us. He knows our children. He knows what we need in our journey of sanctification to be made more like Christ. And, and, and so those who, who are drawn together and, and is always good and positive and edifying, God knows that you need that encouragement. And for those of us that drive each other crazy crazy. crazy he has put us together so we could learn to bear with one another in love and grace and so that we can see things about ourselves that might otherwise be hidden from ourselves and then we can confess it as sin and we can say Lord I need to grow in this and if if we weren't gathered together as God has gathered us together we wouldn't even know that we have this sinful tendency Because there's never been anyone that pushed that button that caused us to act that way that would reveal to us that we need to work on that. You know, there's all kinds of sinful tendencies buried in our flesh that we don't even know about yet. It's part of life in the church. So, yeah, church can be hard, church can be painful. You don't run away. We are bound together here because we're in the household of God, but more than that, we are the church. Church is, comes from our, the translation is, is from the word ecclesia. Ecclesia is called out ones. Who has called us out of the world into this household? The living God. And he makes no mistakes. He makes no mistakes. And when it's hard, let us always remember that the living God is here with us. He doesn't just call us together and say, good luck with that, and walk away. He says, I'm going to dwell in you. I, you are my household. You are my children. You are, this is my family. And my spirit is in you. And I am with you. And what did Jesus say? I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Uh, and now, Jesus is ascended. The Father is transcendent, but the Father and the Son have sent the Spirit who is one with the Father and the Son, and He is here even now. And so, when it gets hard, we just lean into the Holy Spirit. We say, "Oh Spirit, help us. Help us. And let me just say, I'm going to let you down. I'm not going to be the pastor that you always wanted. I've already let you down, I'm sure. I've got my own issues that I need to work on. I'm going to stumble and fall. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness. And you're going to let me down. And you're going to let one another down. So let's just acknowledge that. And move on. Let's reconcile when we need to reconcile. Love covers a multitude of sins. If we don't expect the impossible for one another, will do okay. And the grace of God will help us every step of the way. Observation number three, we are the church, the called out ones, not of some abstract force, but of the living God who's personal and present and he does everything for our good. Observation number four. This is a last observation. South Shore is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Now, buttress is not a word we often use, so let's use the word foundation. There's some debate in translation. What is a buttress? It's a foundation. So, South Shore is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Now, now Paul has gone from household metaphor, meaning the people, right, and the, the relational structure. Of the extended family with a father who has ultimate authority, who delegates authority, and then a, a hierarchy of relationships. That's the, what we started with. Now he transitions the metaphor to an architectural metaphor. So not only are we the people that fill up a, a household, but he says we are like the very building itself, we are like a pillar and a foundation to a house. Now, what does a pillar do? Pillars are necessary in order to hold up the house. If you knock down all the pillars in the house, then the house implodes and falls in on itself. The roof falls down and everything falls down and you don't have a house. What's a foundation? A foundation is that which establishes the, the ground and the security for the house. So if you build your house on a weak foundation, then the house will fall. But if you build your house on a strong foundation, it will stand. I mean, what do you think about from one of uh, Jesus' parables, right? If you build your life on the sand as a foundation, what's going to happen when the wind and the storms come? you get washed away. But if you build your life on the solid rock, when the storms come and the winds come, your house will stand. So the foundation matters. A bad foundation means that the whole house is bad. A house with no pillars means you have no house. So what Paul here says, observation number four, is that so Shore as, as a local church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. A building is only as solid as its pillars and foundation. Now there's a very, a second very dangerous assumption. The first assumption was what? We all sort of think we know what a church is. We all think that we know what a church ought to be and do. That's a dangerous assumption if we're wrong. If, if what we think about the church is, is not according to the word. Now related is a second very dangerous assumption. The assumption here is that of course we believe the Bible. Of course we're a Bible-believing church. And if you go around looking for a church, let's say you just moved into Berry and you're looking for a church, and you go in and you just ask, do you believe in the Bible? what answer are you likely to get? Yeah, of course. We believe in the Bible. Now, but what if you go in and you say, do you preach from the Bible? Yes, absolutely. Of your preaching, do you go through verse by verse or chapter by chapter? Are you trying to understand the Bible? Well, no, like not really. We kind of pull texts from time to time. That support what we think. Okay, there's a problem. Let's go a little bit deeper though. When your leadership is gathered together and is making decisions for the church, is the Bible open? When there's conflict in the church, and you need to get party A and Party B to sit down with one another, is the Bible open? When marriages are crumbling, is the Bible open? Those are better questions. So the assumption is, well, we're a church, so obviously we believe the Bible. The question is, functionally, what's the role of the Bible in the operation of the church, in the day-to-day life of the church? And might I just say that this translates also to the family. Does my family believe in the Bible? Yes, yes. Is the Bible open at supper, at lunch, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, before bed? It doesn't matter when, but day by day, week by week, is the Bible open at home? You can't say that you're a Bible-believing family if you don't read the Bible. So it is with the church. And so when Paul says that the, the, the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth, the question is, if this is true of So Shore question is how much is the Bible open well I want to tell you that the Bible is open a lot and I hope that is your experience in this church that the Bible is open And let's open it more when you get together with your friends from South Shore even if you're meeting for coffee open the Bible And just say, you know, there's one thought, one thought that that came across my mind uh, this week. Take a look at this. Let's build a culture of open Bibles, Bible reading together. And that's what we're going to do. We must hold up the truth of the Word of God in the world. That's the pillar. If we're going to be the pillar of the truth, the world should see from us, man, those people always have their Bibles open. And some people will say, that's great. And some people will say, oh, those are Bible-thumping, egomaniac hypocrites. Let it not be true that we are egomaniac hypocrites. Let it not be true that we're Bible-thumping in the sense where we're just beating people over the head with our Bibles. But let us open ourselves up to that kind of persecution that they would say of us, wow, they love the Word of God. We need to be a pillar of the truth in Barry. We need to have open Bibles all of the time. And so sure also must establish ourselves on the foundation of the truth. That means everything that we do, first and foremost, can't come from feeling, can't come from emotion, can't come from our own thoughts, it can't come from our past experience. It has to come from the Word of God. Therefore, at So Shore, our commitment to one another must be that we will always look to the Word of God. Open the Bible when we're making decisions, when we're in conflict, when we're counseling one another, when we're going out for coffee or tea with one another, uh, when we're seeking to understand what we should do in the big and the small. Because we are founded on the truth, the Word of God. And that will, that will eliminate so many problems for us, so many problems problems. So those are our four observations. In your discipleship groups, you're going to take a look at verse 16. Let me just read it for you and introduce it. We're not going to look at it anymore today, though. After talking about how, you know, it's not self-evident how you ought to behave in the church. So let me write this down for you. And after telling us that we are the household of God, organized hierarchically with God at our head, with ultimate authority, delegated to elders, who are to oversee life in in the household, and after saying, look, you've been called out of the world by the personal living God of the universe, and after saying you are the pillar and the foundation of the truth, he says, look, there's a great mystery in all of this. And if you want to be godly, if you want to be a godly household, if you want to be God's household, in fact, it needs to be founded on and held up by this creed. He, that is Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was Seen by angels, he was proclaimed among the nations he was believed on in the world and taken up into glory and what Paul is doing here is he is he is recycling he 's quoting and citing a creed that was already probably circulating in the local churches, and he 's affirming it and he 's saying. Everything that draws you together must be founded on the fact that you believe that Jesus is fully God but that he was manifested in the flesh. That everything that he did, everything that he taught was vindicated by his resurrection in the Holy Spirit. And that he ascended up into heaven where he reigns as king and he exercises authority as head. Then as his church, go and proclaim him among the nations. You're going to see. People are going to believe on him all throughout the world. And then you, like him, can be taken up into glory. This is the foundation of what we believe. It's not all we believe, but it's a foundation of what we believe. Talk about that more in your discipleship groups. Over the next five months, we are going to be searching the scriptures of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus to learn and then to implement God's vision for his household, for his church. Because we are his household. We are his family. The living God is among us. He has called us out of the world. And we shall always seek to manifest his truth in word and in deed. If you're excited about this, as I am, as... as the elders are, I pray that you would find yourself into a discipleship group. And let's, let's do this together, trusting in the power of God's love, kindness, and grace toward us who believe. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you. You have called us out of the world into your household. That you have given us very plain instructions about how we are to behave. I thank you also that you have showed us that we must ground everything in the truth and we want to represent the truth in the world in which we live. Be merciful with us and help us. We thank you for your spirit that he dwells in us and among us and we look to him to be our teacher and our guide. In your name we pray. Amen.